Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to whenever and wherever you're listening. This is Baz from Baz Reviews, the best place to discover cool music. And today, I am presenting you the third installment of the BazCast. I want to thank everybody for continuing to tune into my content, and you guys, my fans, my stands, my supporters, subscribers, whatever you want to call yourselves, you guys are the reason why I keep putting this stuff out. And March, it was a pretty busy month, I mean, in terms of content. Um, and a lot of that will be discussed in this podcast, but, you know, let's dive right into what I listened to last month. Alright, so, um, the first record I listened to last month was, um, Disintegration by The Cure, and my goodness, this record is, it's phenomenal. From the minute I dove into it, I fell in love, and, you know, The Cure, despite being more of a synth-pop band for the majority of the 80s, they completely abandoned that niche with the release of this album. They're usually happy instrumentals found on their earlier records were replaced by dark, ethereal synths and echoey drums. Plus, their lead singer, Robert Smith, his vocals became very ashy and sorrowful instead of usually very happy and pleasing to listen to. And yeah, it was risky, but it definitely paid off. Songs like Pictures of You and Plain Song are absolute classics and must-listens to those who want to get into The Cure. And sure, there are a few tunes like Love Song that for people that like The Cure's original sound, but... You know, this record's courage and out-of-this-world beauty has instantly put it onto my top 10 list and definitely deserves a 10 out of 10 score. The second album I listened to last month was called Luxury Problems by Andy Stott, and I would say it was a, a pretty solid electronic record. Um, it was pretty industrial production, it was minimal, heavy drum and bass influence like Aphex Twin, and seeing that style make a comeback made me pretty happy. Songs like Up the Box and Luxury Problems were my favorite, but um, yeah, it may require a few listens if you really want to enrich yourself with his esoteric production. Um, but like I said, it is still a pretty solid album, and I would probably give it a 7.5 out of 10. Next album I listened to was um, September 5th by Division, and this one actually really surprised me. Um, this R&B duo is currently on Drake's record label, OVO, but it is definitely a lot better than anything Drake has put out. I was exceptionally pleased with the production style 1985 brought to the table. It's very diverse considering these guys do R&B and not rock or rap. It's almost like you're at a cheesecake factory for an album. Each song has a different influence. There's trap rap, gospel, EDM, drum and bass, you name it. My point is, is that there's something for even the stingiest of listeners. However, the lyricism isn't all that deep, and the motifs of love, sex, and breakups get milked to death on this album. While I see it's kind of a cliche move, I'll admit that the butter-smooth vocals from Daniel Daly complement the production very well. If you can get over the cheesy-ish vocals and themes, September 5th is a diamond in the rough from an amazing year of music that was 2016, and I will proudly give this album an 8.5 out of 10. The next album I listened to was called Quiet Signs by Jessica Pratt. The quiet and melancholy sound Pratt evoked on this album was really well done. In my opinion, it was a tribute to the soulful crooners of the 1960s. She's got sorrowful, lonely vocals that sounded a lot like Dusty Springfield and Janis Joplin, and I think the bluesy guitars and pianos made this album even seem more of a pastiche. The 60s blues style of music isn't really that prevalent, but I think Pratt did a commendable job bringing it back into the mainstream. Songs like Fire the Well and Aeroplane were standouts off this album, and definitely worth a listen. Despite me not being the biggest country music person myself, this is a superb release from the quiet first quarter of 2019, and I would give this album an 8 out of 10. And the last album I listened to this month was called When I Get Home by Solange. So this is Solange Knowles' most recent album, and it was an interesting release in many respects. Instead of releasing fewer, longer-length songs like she did on A Seat at the Table, she ended up putting a hodgepodge of 2-3 to three minute songs and 30-second interludes scattered in between. 
I thought the album could have done without those little interludes, but that's just merely nitpicky shit that, I don't know, a lot of people don't really pay attention to. I will say that the production on these tracks are quite techy, and I think she really did really well with that style. Um, she used it to her advantage, and she put out some really high-quality tracks. And um, I might even be brave to say she's better than Queen Bee herself. Songs like Down With A Click, Way To Show, Dreams, and Almeida were definitely my favorites off this album, and it show off her talents as a singer and as a songwriter. She definitely did get a lot ballsier with her features on this one. Um, she got Playboy Cardi, Gucci Mane, plus Metro Boomin, Tyler The Creator, and Panda Bear on the production side. All in all, while When I Get Home has differed from a lot of Solange's past releases, I enjoy the diversity it presented. This record will likely make my top 10 list come December. December, eight and a half out of ten. Alright, now we're gonna look ahead to the month of April here. Um, probably gonna listen to five albums again. Um, and I don't think I mentioned this earlier, but I have been booking a lot of interviews with smaller bands lately. Uh, last week I did five in three days. I, I was absolutely booked, but I'm really glad that, you know, more artists are willing to accept my requests and you know it's it's great to see my channel finally growing and let's see where it goes in the future you know maybe I'll be getting some bigger bands and yeah I'm really excited so um in terms of albums I'm gonna start off with uh, Little Sims's new album Great Area I've heard a lot of great things about this record uh, personally I'm not usually a fan of UK rap but you know what based on its acclaim so far I think I am gonna check it out and give it a listen um, the next album I'm going to listen to is called Lush by Snail Mail. This is the solo project of the teenage sensation Lindsay Jordan. And uh, she's got a lot of great sounds. I've listened to a couple of cuts off of it in the past, and I've liked that. So I'm hoping to dive into the record in full. And she's coming to Cleveland in July, so I'm hoping to see her then too if I really do like this album. Uh, the next album I'm going to listen to is by my man Anderson Pack. He is dropping Ventura on April 12th, so be on the lookout for that. I'm incredibly excited for this record, and I'm hoping it presents a lot more musically than Oxnard did. It kind of fell a little flat. I, I mean, I, I like King James. That was a good single. So if, if it's anything like what I heard off that, I mean, I'm hoping, you know, Ventura's going to be as good. And I am pretty darn excited for this next record, Fishing for Fishies by my men, King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. They took a break from music in 2018 after releasing five albums in 2017, but comes out April 26th. Again, be on the lookout. This is going to blow up. I am very excited. And then the last album I'm going to listen to was a mixtape that came out a couple weeks ago by the Australian producer Flume. It is called Hi, This is Flume. I've heard a couple of singles off it already. I like what I heard, so you know what? Again, I'm going to dive in the album and see if I like it. So, yeah. So, yeah, that pretty much wraps it up. I mean, again, a couple interviews will be going up within the next few weeks. I'll have to transcribe those and, you know, maybe another column by the end of the month. But just, again, keep paying attention to those interviews in my month in review coming May 1st. So, yeah, that's all i got to say about April. Okay, so since I did mention music festivals in my last segment, I figured that in this podcast I would inform you about all of the music festivals this year and their lineups and their prices of tickets and stuff in case you do want to check it out. So without further ado, here we go. So the first, obviously, and probably one of the most important is Coachella, and that's coming up next week, April 12th, 14th, the 19th to the 21st. And, you know, it's got its solid lineup as usual, mix of indie and pop. 
Um, artists like Anderson Pack, Ariana Grande, Aphex Twin, Billie Eilish, Blood Orange, Childish Gambino, Churches, Diplo, Janelle Monet, Juice World, Kate Trinidad, and Mac DeMarco are all going to be performing, and it looks like a great festival. The, the prices are pretty reasonable for the weekend, $429, and it's usually a pretty trendy um, festival, a lot more intimate venue in Indio, California, up in the mountains. And I would recommend, if you were going to go, you should go on Saturday, April 13th, and Saturday, April 20th, baby. Alright, next up, I'm going to discuss Governor's Ball, and that's um, May 31st through June 2nd in New York City. And it's got a heavier influence on um, rap and R&B. You've got artists like Tyler the Creator, Brockhampton, The Internet, Major Lazer, Vince Staples, Playboy Cardi, Nas, No Name, SZA, and a couple of artists on the indie rock side. A lot of Julian Casablanca's stuff with The Strokes, The Voids, and then the upcoming Nashville singer-songwriter, Soccer Mommy, as well. The, uh, the three-day general admission for that is $275, and I would recommend if you were going to go, Saturday, June 1st is your best go. Um, there's a lot of cool rappers and alternative artists that I think are worth checking out. Uh, the next one, another pretty important one, is Bonnaroo, and that is from June 13th to June 18th in Manchester, Tennessee. Uh, I don't know. I think it's more of a weak lineup this year. Um, Post Malone is headlining. You've got Catfish and the Bottlemen, Quinn 92, Little Sims, Cardi B, Walk the Moon, Courtney Barnett, and Childish Gambino and Brockhampton again. You know, the list goes on. Uh, the four-day general admission is $319, and I would say your best day if you were going to go is Friday, June 14th, because it has the best mix of artists. So are you considering traveling out of the country this summer? If so, go to Glastonbury in Somerset, England from June 26th to June 30th. It has a solid lineup across the board. It typically has a lot more British artists, but it's still an awesome lineup this year. You've got artists like The Cure, Vampire Weekend, Wu-Tang Clan, Kamasi Washington, Idols, The Streets, Rex Orange County, and Kurt Vile. Amazing lineup. Uh, the GA does not go on sale until late April, so be sure to be checking constantly for tickets because um, I'm sure they'll sell out pretty fast based on what you're seeing. It's probably going to sell out pretty quickly based on the lineup I just mentioned. I mean, geez, I, I totally love to go to this. And um, there's not really a daily lineup that's been announced at the time of this recording, so no comment can be made on the best day to go. I would say this is one of my more favorite ones. It is Pitchfork Music Festival from July 19th to July 21st in Chicago. Um, it's got a good blend of small and mid-tier artists. You've got Denzel Curry, Earl Sweatshirt, Grape Tooth, Robin, Snail Mail, JPEG Mafia, Whitney, Charlie XCX, and a shocking return of the Isley Brothers, which is pretty crazy. And the ticketing is relatively affordable. It's $75 for a single day and $175 for the weekend. I would say the best day to be there is Sunday, July 21st. It's got the most diverse lineup out of all of the days. Um, and then moving a little closer to me, um, you've got the Mopop Festival, the weekend of July 27th and 28th, and this, I think, is gonna get super overlooked, but the lineup packs a huge punch. You've got Tame Impala, Vampire Weekend, Caliucci's, Jid, Snail Mail again, and Yellow Days. And the weekend pass, guess how much it is? $109. That's a hell of a value for the aforementioned artists. I don't think there's a daily lineup yet, so I can't really tell you what's the best day, but I would assume you'd probably be going for the weekend because that pass is, I mean, it's quite a deal for the artists you're seeing. And then the next one I want to discuss, and this is obviously the most popular out of the bunch, Lollapalooza from August 1st to August 4th, and that is in Grant Park in Chicago. Um, I don't know. I just think personally this lineup is kind of getting on my nerves. 
I feel like the culture of social media has shifted toward popular demand, and as you can see, you've got artists like Ariana Grande, 21 Pilots, The Chainsmokers, Flume, 21 Savage, Sheck West, Gunna, Lil Baby, Lil Skies, Black, Lil Wayne, Meek Mill, it's kind of repetitive with all this trap rap kind of stuff, and that's not really what I want to pay, like, $400 for a whole weekend to see. I mean, granted, there still is a good following of indie. You've got Sharon Van Etten, you've got Tenacious D, Mitski, Rosalia, Idols, Boy Pablo, and Joji. But still, I don't know if this is really the best year to be there. Yeah, I'm, I'm not really sure, you know. The lineup has not been posted for each day, so I can't really give you a best day. Uh, the prices aren't too bad. One day tickets from 1.30 in the weekend at 4.30. So I guess if you really do want to go and see these artists, be my guest, man, you know. And then, I think that just about wraps it. Wait a sec. Am I getting a call? Hold on. Hello? Oh, if it isn't my old friend Nostalgia, how are you? Wait, what? No, they're not. You're kidding me. Okay, I guess I have to mention that one now. Alright, well thanks Nostalgia, I appreciate it. Bye-bye. Ladies and gentlemen, it appears that I have just been informed that they are doing a Woodstock 50. That's right. I can't believe they're doing Woodstock 50. Really? It seems kind of skeptical, especially after the failure of 1999. Essentially, at this point, it's only for nostalgia. Eh, I, I don't know. You're doing it at the original location in Watkins Glen, New York. It's on a dairy farm. Who wants to go there? Nobody. And plus, 99 was on an Air Force base with 100 degree heat. The original one had heavy rains all weekend, so it's confusing why they'd want to recreate it. It was a financial disaster. There was free drugs, sex, it was the age of love, the whole nine yards at the first one. 99, there was a lot of violence, rape. It, it just wasn't great. I mean, sure, both of them, more prevalently, 69 had more of an, an influence on popular music, but the lineups at all of them haven't even been that great, especially, oh my god, 99? It was a crappy lineup in a mixed hodgepodge. George Clinton, James Brown, DMX, Korn, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Rage Against the Machine, the Brian Setzer Orchestra. I'm sorry, it's just none of those artists really go that great together. And not to mention, Woodstock 50's lineup is already bad enough. It just keeps me scratching my head, you know. It doesn't seem to have a specific audience. The Black Keys, Chance the Rapper, Sturgill Simpson, Run the Jewels, Earl Sweatshirt, Princess Nokia, I guess are highlights. But why the hell do you want to put artists like Miley Cyrus, Greta Van Fleet, and Jay-Z on the lineup? That's just poor form. And why are you trying to get people from the original Woodstock back with artists like John Fogarty, The Zombies, David Crosby, and Can't Heat? I didn't even know those guys were still alive and performing. I mean, again, it's probably for nostalgia. And I, I don't know how well this will go based on the success of the prior two festivals. Tickets aren't up yet. And uh, may God be with you if you end up attending this one, but the best day is probably Saturday, August 17th. So that basically concludes my summary and spotlight on these music festivals over the summer. I hope you've found this enlightening, and I hope you find a couple of good music festivals that you will be able to attend.
Okay, so the next order of business I'd like to discuss on this podcast is um, uh, a spotlight on records that I was sent from the famous indie record label Sub Pop Records. I came in contact with their publicist trying to get an interview. I ended up getting a lot of free records from up-and-coming artists on their label. You know, a couple recent releases and some upcoming releases. So essentially, I got a free pass to listen to, like, amazing music by artists on both Sub Pop and on their sister label, Hardly Art. I thought that was pretty cool myself. So, yeah, let's just get into what I listened to, and I, I definitely heard a lot of really cool stuff. So, the first record I listened to was um, a mashup of Dry as a Doll and Rehab Doll by the pioneers of the grunge genre, Green River. I'd never heard of this band before. You know, their sound is nothing short of awesome. And though this is a reissue of an earlier compilation that they released, the, the list of tunes on this record is still sick. Gritty and loud production, and that was pretty enjoyable, plus the lyrics and instrumentation are edgy and in-your-face. I was pretty shocked when I found out that these guys were even from the 80s because a lot of the stuff that they were releasing, you know, sounds like something that could have been released today. And yeah, they only did release one studio album, which was Rehab Doll, but, um, you know, without a doubt, this is definitely a great find from the earlier days of Sub Pop. For anyone who likes punk and grunge, I would definitely recommend checking them out. So the next album I listened to was called uh, Cast by Perfect Sun, and that was released in February. And this is the debut sub-pop release of the Polish singer and producer Tobias Blinski, formerly under the moniker Cold Air. And pardon my very poor pronunciation of that Polish name. Um, I'm trying my best here, people. Yeah, I don't know. This record didn't really blow me away. Um, it was pretty standard for the most part. I guess the emotional yet harmonious vocals against the ethereal synth-based production are pretty genre-typical, but I think he did a nice job of putting his own spin on things. The darker synths and powerful drums were intelligently paired with his higher range vocals. This is definitely that something a more experienced producer would have chosen to do. And speaking of the production, the only flaw that I saw with this album is that it sounded kind of fake and overdone. A lot of these tracks have been given like extensive HD facelifts in post-production to make them sound much more real than they actually were. Nevertheless, the tracklist I heard was alright, and I hope to see some more great stuff from Perfect Sun in the future. So this one was actually a pretty fun listen. It was um, by the comedy duo from New Zealand, Flight of the Concords. So they recently dropped a live album from an earlier show in London. I haven't heard anything by these guys before, but I thought they had some pretty decent stuff. Sure, they're not amazing singers, but the musicianship of both comedians is quite stellar for them not being, you know, classically trained. The music is pretty simple but well arranged, again, for non-musicians, plus they are pretty damn funny. Um, throughout the record, Clement and Mackenzie go between like side gags and comedy songs, and it's structured quite well. It's almost as if they're like a musical version of Seinfeld, you know, because they kind of draw humor out of ordinary things in everyday life. And I'm personally a fan of Jerry Seinfeld, and I don't know if you are, so props to them for keeping that style alive. And I guarantee you guys will be laughing for the entire 97 minutes of this show. So this was another fun release from Sub Pop. It is called Pony by Orville Peck, and that was released March 22nd. And this is the first release of the masked Nevadan country singer. Who knew that outlaw country could be this cool in the 21st century? Peck came out of the gates with his debut record, and there is so much nostalgia on this record. I felt immersed in the 60s-esque vibe right from the beginning, and I recollected about guys like Johnny Cash or Willie Nelson, and I was really impressed by a lot of the songs I heard off of the album, as they showed off Peck's authentic outlaw style to a T, and I see this guy having a lot going for him in the future if he keeps putting out stuff as good as this.
So this record was released a couple of days ago, and it is already out to widespread critical acclaim, and I couldn't agree more. It is called Titanic Rising by Wise Blood, the fourth album by the psych pop mastermind Natalie Maring. Out of everyone on this list, she is probably the only name that I've heard of before. Uh, Maring has already received critical acclaim for earlier releases, and Titanic Rising, as I previously mentioned, is no exception to that. Uh, the dream pop and art pop elements on this record uh, are a spectacular flashback to the 90s art pop artists such as Bjork and Fiona Apple. Each one of these tracks seems to be more sad than the next, and I thought her portrayal of this depression was very well done. The sorrowful vocals and desolate instrumentation choices were quite diversified, and I guarantee you will not be disappointed with what you hear. The next record I listened to was Night of the Worm Moon by the front woman and lead guitarist of the LA rock band La Luce, Shauna Cleveland, and she showed off her solo talent pretty well on this. After a first listen, I will say she did pretty well. Um, this is another record that is on the sad side, so I recommend that you keep your tissue box at the ready. Cleveland's soft, coffeehouse-esque vocals and her reverbing instruments that she uses were a nice combo to see. Additionally, I'd be happy to comment that her songwriting is pretty decent. My only criticism is that she seemed to repeat a lot of the same ideas on many tracks throughout the record, and I wished that she'd ventured a little more into the unknown a little bit more, and nevertheless, it is still a solid release that I don't think you'll want to sell short. Um, the next record I listened to was called 10,000 by a Seattle quartet called Versing, and this is their fourth studio album, coming out May 3rd, 2019, and it certainly had a lot going for it. I really liked the mostly noisy and grungy feeling these guys gave off. What meant more to me though was um, the quality of the guitar riffs on these songs. My goodness, they're so impressively crafted and played. The lyricism and vocals are quite important and they kind of made him quite inaudible, but again, like I said, they had a much bigger impact on me with their instrumentation. Despite having a much smaller following on Spotify and Apple Music, 10,000 is one of the better releases that Sub Pop sent to me. And um, the last record I listened to was um, Debt Begins at 30 by the Pittsburgh-based rock band The Go To Beds, and that is releasing May 30th. And um, they're a pretty experienced band. I would say that they have a sound similar to Versing, but um, Debt Begins was more of a power-punk, post-punk fusion that I personally enjoyed. Um, one thing that I kind of didn't like was that the lead singer, Eli Kazan, was trying to mimic Ian Curtis of Joy Division a little bit, and I thought it wasn't all that great. Most of the vocals on this were slightly more irritating than 10,000. Yet again, I do firmly believe that the instrumentation of many of these tracks made up for this flaw. And it was another great find from Sub Pop, and I recommend to listen to this once it comes out. Overall, I would like to thank the publicity team at Sub Pop for sending me these new downloads to review, and I wish the best of luck to these artists with their new releases, and I hope you found something new and interesting to check out. Okay, so while we are on the topic of reviews, I decided to do something that's pretty unorthodox. I know that the slogan of Baz Reviews is the best place to discover cool music, but I asked myself a question. Can music be so bad that it's good? With this next segment, I'm going to explore this theory in more depth. A couple weeks ago, for a few hours, I was looking at lists with albums that were considered the worst of all time. I came away with a few consensus picks, so here are my thoughts and opinions on each record. So the first record I am going to roast the shit out of, essentially, is um, Duran Duran. Um, this respected 80s band tried so hard to make a 90s sounding record, as you can assume, it's a recipe for disaster. The band tried their hand at so many different genres, Britpop, hard rock, smooth rock, and each attempt is so poorly executed. In fact, they missed the mark in almost every category musically. Annoyingly loud guitars, haughty drum beats, cringy synth lines, boring song lyrics, the list goes on. And to make matters worse, 
they put on a horrible cover of Perfect Day by Lou Reed. Oh yeah, and they added Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five on a heavy rock track. In what universe are any of these tactics acceptable? Clearly, Duran Duran were looking for something to stay relevant after their success in the 80s. It's like essentially every song title on this album is supposed to warn its listeners of the low quality. In that case, thank you, Duran Duran, for such a ball of confusion. This record was definitely not a success, so if you'll excuse me, I'd like to drive by this record and, and listen to something else much more enjoyable. So the next album that I bothered to listen to was Lulu by Lou Reed and Metallica. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty bad collab from the get-go, and it got a measly 1.0 on Pitchfork. Um, I guess both are rock legends, and you would have figured that they had a little chemistry between them, but you'd be dead wrong. As soon as I heard the first minute of Brandenburg Gate, I knew it was going to be a train wreck. It's essentially Lou Reed performing spoken word poetry over Metallica. It's pretty laughably unpleasant. Not to mention the poetry lacks a lot of depth and is kind of badly written. Plus, it's pretty rare that you'll hear the poetry line up with the beat of the music. That's incredibly irritating. And did I mention that this record lasts 87 minutes? That's right, 87 poorly made, poorly thought out minutes. I could watch film classics such as Borat or Child Play in as much time as I spent listening to this album. Though I would strongly not advise you to listen to this record in full, please listen to a few tracks and gleefully laugh at such an atrocity. So the third record I'd like to talk about is Scream by the Soundgarden lead singer Chris Cornell, which is pretty ironic because he's a pretty well-respected musician. Rip, by the way, buddy. We miss you a lot. Uh, Cornell literally made one of the worst music decisions he could have made. Again, I think he was trying to stay relevant, same case as Duran Duran, but why wouldn't he have just dropped something that he was familiar with, like in the same genre that Soundgarden was in, right? Instead, he just shat out a record so bad that I had to turn it off halfway through. It was by far some of the most vile-sounding dance pop I've ever heard. Its busy drum beats and wonky synths paired atrociously with Cornell's auto-tuned, robotic voice. Christ alive, my ears were bleeding after the first three tracks. What's even funnier, you ask? Chris Cornell had the absolute nerve to compare this album to both Dark Side of the Moon, which I don't even like in the first place, but still, and A Night at the Opera by Queen. I'm not even sure a record produced by Timbaland could even get such a legendary status, and neither could Cornell himself. This record tarnished his name and just made him a laughingstock. So the last album that I dared to listen to was by former child star Corey Feldman, who played Mouth and the Goonies in Teddy and Stand By Me. He's so desperate to get back into the public that he put out one of the most dreadful albums in recent memory, Angelic to the Core. The dance portion of this record is so aggravatingly bad, not to mention the rock portion is just as bad. I guarantee Feldman didn't even pick up an instrument or put any thought into making the music on this album, and as a result, Angelic to the Core is 95 painful minutes of flawed, repulsive instrumentals, terrible lyrics and vocals, and an overdose of autotune. Well, I guess he did manage to get the likes of such past prime musicians as Fred Durst and Snoop Dogg, and I will admit, this might have been the cream of the crop of all of the bad records that I listened to. I figured that I would just lighten things up a little bit, hope you guys got a good laugh out of it. Again, take it with a grain of salt, if you do like these records, I'm sorry for insulting them, but come on, they are pretty bad.
All right, so the last thing that I want to present to you on this podcast, I was happy to score another interview with the band Deal Casino from Asbury Park, New Jersey. I got to catch up with their drummer, Chris Donofrio, and he was a super chill guy. Um, but this band was particularly special to find because three of the members, um, Joe Perella, the lead singer, Josie Cowell, the guitar player, and Joe Rodney, the bass player, have been performing with each other since elementary school. Um, once Chris was named the drummer in 2015, the band kicked it into high gear. Um, in total, the band has turned out seven studio releases, and I've been pretty fond of a lot of their stuff. And with each release, Dio Casino keeps showing more and more promise as a strong name in the indie rock scene. In fact, the success of their latest record, LLC, scored them a spot on the roster for the previously mentioned festival Governor's Ball. Um, though the band is currently finishing up a tour to promote this album, I cannot express my gratitude to Chris um, for taking the time to interview, and I'd also like to thank his manager, Chris Pergolizzi, for allowing me to interview them. So, yeah. Hey, Chris, man, you're on. Um, how's the tour going? The tour is going. Uh, we're, we're towards the end here. It's uh, the home stretch. So I just want to start off by asking, um, which albums or artists uh, influenced you to start a music career in the first place? I feel like we get asked this question a lot and never have a good answer for it. Um, I mean, we all have our, you know, we all grew up on our classic rock with the Beatles and Led Zeppelin and stuff like that. I think that's the kind of stuff that makes you want to become a player first when you're a child, you know? You know, obviously once you kind of figure out a direction once you become a player and you have, an, you know, an instrument that you like, I think your next part is kind of, you know, trying to be creative after that. So I think, you know, we've all gone through our different phases of classic rock and indie rock and, you know, you know, we love Radiohead and Elliot Smith and stuff like that. Um, John listens to Johann Sebastian Bach while he's driving. So, you know, it's a very wide array of stuff. So I heard you mention um, Radiohead as an influence. I'm a huge fan of their work, too. Um, what's your favorite record by them? Oh, boy. Uh, complicated answer because their best album is OK Computer, but my favorite album is probably In Rainbows. Yeah, it does a little bit of everything that they're good at. Oh, I 100% agree with that. Um, so I saw that the other three members of the band have been performing with each other since, I think, elementary school. Um, how did you end up meeting them? Um, we just happened to, Joe P, the lead singer, uh, and I happened to end up on another gig together at one point, uh, filling in for uh, another uh, artist from New Jersey named Nicole Atkins. And we just ended up doing a few shows together. And when we were rehearsing for her shows, uh, he was showing me their stuff. And I was like, damn, this is pretty good. You know, we ended up, I think we ended up playing some of the band's songs instead of practicing Nicole's song. And uh, it just kind of went from there. If the history is correct. They, those guys literally grew up together. It's pretty crazy. Um, can you describe the band's process for making songs? Um, it, there's a lot of different processes. Like half of the LLC album is us just jamming in a room. Um, there's a, you know another portion of it that is that is our songs that either of the Joes built from start to finish in their computer and that we kind of like went back and learned. Um, you know, it's, I think our process is actually going more that direction now where we're kind of rethinking the creative process in terms of like, you know, 
conventional confines of like write song, demo it, do pre-production, go record. And like, you know, we're in a hotel room right now in Austin and Joe has his headphones on and he's working on a song and there's something going on in there that would probably get used on the next album. So that's kind of where it's at now. So um, do you guys typically like to improvise when you make music or do you typically strive to get something right when you're in the studio? Um, well, usually when we set up to jam, like the four of us, we, we like 90% of the time some nonsense happens that turns into a song. Like we usually kind of jam. We have basically, yeah, we improvise for about an hour or so and that turns into something or there are things that just get built in the computer from the bottom up and just kind of get added onto. What would you say you value more, lyricism or production value and instrumentation? I mean, at the end of the day, the lyrics make the song good or not, um, but I think that the production value kind of sets the mood, and I think that kind of takes us in the direction we like to go, so I think they're equally as important, to be honest. Um, if you could compare Deal Casino's sound to any other band, who would you say and why? Oh, I got all the guys listening on this. Anybody? That's a, t- that's a tough one. Because the answer could be construed kind of arrogantly or stupidly. You know, I, I don't know. We're trying to be a band, like, from the 90s, basically. Where, like, people were playing things and there was feelings and emotions. And, you know, everything was live and nothing was on track. And it was just kind of a band playing. So, like, if, you know, we're trying to be like, you know, any of those 90s bands, like Nirvana or Radiohead or stuff like that. That's kind of our vibe right now. Uh, what songs would you recommend to those who are looking to check out Dio Casino? Um, I would probably start them with the song French Blonde on our newest album, just because it's kind of weird, but it's still a pop song. Um, and then that's the kind of song where, you know, if you like what you hear on record and you come to the show, that's a song that translates very well when we play it live because, it, you know, it has a lot of energy and we do it differently and kind of encompasses all the things that we do well. Um, and kind of any of the, the, there's a cluster of like all my favorite songs on that record. Like, um, the first five or six songs on the LLC are, are, are my favorite songs we've ever done, like Color TV and Happy People and um, Chocolate Cake, along with French Blonde, are probably the starter pack on our band, I would say. So, I mean, this is pretty awesome to hear, but um, how did you guys react to getting on the lineup for Governor's Ball this year? Uh, We flipped the fuck out. That's the coolest thing that ever happened to us, for sure. I mean, that's, you know, the biggest festival on the East Coast, or at least up in our area. Yeah, we we, we were, it's still weird looking at our name on that lineup. Yeah, I don't know if that's ever going to not be, like, kind of staggering to look at. There's not a lot of bands on the lineup, which I think is cool, and that I think the bands will probably stand out for that. And uh, last question I have prepared for you guys. What music goals do you guys have for the future? Um, well, we probably want to make another record this year um, that we that we like. I mean, we, we like the LLC album. I think it's a, maybe the first thing that we've ever done that we're pretty proud of. Uh, so I think trying to do something artistically and creatively that kind of matches that um, as far as the way we value it would be a cool accomplishment. But, you know, we're doing pretty well out here touring a lot. So if that continues to build um, 
that's something that we would be very satisfied with. All right, Chris, look, I just want to say thank you so much again for your time with this interview. I really appreciate it. Um, and yeah, I hope that you guys do really well on the rest of your tour at Governor's Ball and then best of luck in your endeavors on the new album. And I'm sure I hope we can catch up soon, man. Take it easy. Thank you. Let us know when, uh, when the piece goes live. Thank you so much again to Chris Donofrio of Deal Casino for the interview. I cannot thank him enough. He's a great guy, and for those of you who haven't checked out Deal Casino yet, I would strongly recommend you to. And I would say that about wraps up the third episode of the Bazcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. I really appreciate everybody tuning in and giving me great content ideas. I cannot run this site without you guys. Thank you so much. And again, if you heard anything on this podcast that you don't agree with, feel free to reach out to me. Again, I'm always down to do music debates, and that's just what I love doing. This is Baz, signing off. Thanks for listening.